we're going to have a great time talking about Jonathan Edwards. I mean, this is about as good as it gets. Um, I, I wish you could come to Dallas, Texas with me and go up to my little study and walk into my study and you would see a statue of Luther and a statue of Calvin. Uh, you would see um, Fox's Book of Martyrs while he was still alive, about that thick, a Geneva Bible, um, Whitfield sermons. Um, you would turn to the right where my desk is, and there's a painting of George Whitfield at Moorfields. There's Luther, and over here on this wall, I've got John Knox, I've got John Calvin, I have William Tyndale from the London uh, Portrait Gallery. There's only two of William Tyndale in existence. One is at Oxford, one is in the London Portrait Gallery. He never sat for a painting because he had to remain anonymous. And so they were both painted posthumously. But immediately behind my desk in the most prominent place, oh, and on my desk there's a statue, a bust of Spurgeon and a painting of Spurgeon on the other wall. But immediately behind my desk is this large portrait of Jonathan Edwards. Such that every time I come to the desk with Calvin and Luther and all the others on the side, they're in the very middle, prominently, is Jonathan Edwards. And it is an exact replica of the portrait that hangs in Nassau Hall in Princeton, where Edwards died, where he had been the president for a very short period of time. Um, every president's portrait hangs in Nassau Hall. There's one room every, port, every president going back to when it was the College of New Jersey. And there's so many, there are three levels, and the top level is where Edward's portrait is, third level up. And someone got on a stepladder and took it off the wall and laid it on the floor and on top of the stepladder took a picture of it, a very professional picture, and then hung it back up and so I have an exact replica of what hangs in Nassau Hall uh, of Jonathan Edwards. I sold three sets of golf clubs to frame <laughs> Edwards. I don't even do that to my own children's pictures. <laughs> my wife's wedding picture now, you know, it's over here in a little tin. <laughs> but Edwards, Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this isn't me. It's just us chicken in the room. <laughs> so just us guys. And so I, I'm so thankful that I could have the opportunity to speak to you on Jonathan Edwards. Um, all of my books, I retired from my pastorate four years ago, and virtually all of my books, 98% of my books are in a warehouse, and I haven't seen them in four years. I just have a few basic commentaries 
but I do have the 29-volume Yale edition of the entire works of Jonathan Edwards that were included in that. So Edwards, it's just impossible to exaggerate the giftedness and the importance of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, He is arguably the greatest mind ever produced on American soil. Uh, That is the consensus of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, He is considered the greatest pastor American soil has ever known. Um, He's considered the greatest philosopher. He's considered the greatest preacher. And he certainly preached the greatest sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you hadn't read that recently... You need to get alone someplace and read that. So for us to talk about Jonathan Edwards, this is very worthy. He's very worthy. Arnold Dalimore, who was describing the period in which Edwards lived, said that apart from the apostolic age and the Reformation itself, The great awakening that occurred here in the 1740s is the most powerful movement of God's spirit in the history of the church. Close quote. What a statement. I think we could say it's the greatest movement of the spirit of God on American soil ever. And so it's virtually impossible for us to overstate the importance of Edwards. George Marsden, who is the author of what many would consider The definitive biography of Edwards has stated, quote, the most acute early American philosopher, and that takes in not just Christian philosopher, but any philosopher, and the most brilliant of all American theologians is Jonathan Edwards. At least, Marsden writes, at least three of his many works, Religious Affections, Freedom of the Will, and the nature of true virtue stand as masterpieces in the larger history of Christian literature, close quote. So in other words, three of Edwards' works are right there with the Institutes of Christian Religion by Calvin, are right there with Bondage of the Will by, by Luther. And, and Edwards would have at least three in the discussion of the Mount Rushmore of, of paintings. R.C. Sproul, highly regarded theologian, has called Edwards' book, Freedom of the Will, quote, the most important theological work ever published in America, close quote. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones, not known for just making exaggerated statements, said, I am tempted, perhaps foolish, to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest, close quote. In other words, in Lloyd-Jones' mind, Jonathan Edwards towered over Calvin and Luther and the Puritan divines. What an extraordinary statement. And for Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was so instrumental in reintroducing the Puritans to our generation, 
uh, as he held the Puritan Conference each year at Westminster Chapel and was so instrumental in helping the banner of truth begin to reprint and republish these older works. In fact, Banner of Truth was started just by Lloyd-Jones' own personal library where he found these Puritan and Reformed works in secondhand bookstores in, in London. Lloyd-Jones said, I'm not a 16th century man, referring to the Reformers, and I'm not a 17th century man, referring to the Puritans. Lloyd-Jones said, I am an 18th century man, referring to Edwards and referring to Whitfield. Because the way that they preached, not just with theological brilliance, but with passion and fervency and, and f a fire in their bones. So what was it about Edwards that we're still talking about Edwards 300 years later? Well, I think two things merged together, two streams, giftedness and godliness. His supreme giftedness is virtually unparalleled. Um, he was born into a Puritan home where he was personally instructed by his father, who was himself a minister. He was tutored by his 10 older sisters. And so he's the product of a Puritan home where the instruction was focused upon, upon young Jonathan. I mean, he is the, the product of a father and, a, and, and four sisters pouring uh, literature and a liberal arts education as well as biblical truth and, and, and the greatest writings of the time to have been read. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was one of the most noted pastors in all of New, New England. He was called the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley, who pastored for 16, 62 years there at Northampton, and, and Edwards would actually follow him in the pastorate at, at North, Northampton. His father, Timothy Edwards, was a Puritan minister, and he, he just grew up virtually on the front pew under his father's highly reformed uh, Calvinistic preaching, he had every spiritual advantage going for him. And in some ways, unmatched, he entered Yale at age 13, and that was not uncommon at that time. But he entered Yale at age 13 and graduated at age 16, Valley Victorian, number one in the class. And he, when he gave his, the defense of his thesis, which was on imputation, he gave it in Latin in front of the entire student body and in front of the entire faculty. And back then, you would not know if you graduated or not until after you gave a defense of your thesis in Latin. And so this brilliant, this brilliant mind... And he would be converted not until age 17. But it could be argued that his godliness exceeded his giftedness. His, he was steeped in Puritan piety. 
and was stamped with a personal devotion for God that could not be extinguished. And when he was 18 and 19 years old, he went to pastor his first church. It was a church, he'd only been a Christian for one year. And it was a church in downtown New York, near where the intersection of Broadway and Wall Street is today. It was a Scottish Presbyterian church that had a, a split. And he came in as, uh, as an interim pastor, age 18, to pastor this church. And as he came, he felt the weight of pastoral responsibility heavy upon his shoulder. There was a gravitas about it. And so he sat down and began to write, which would take him over the course of the next year, what has come to be known as his resolutions. And for our time today, I would like to talk about his resolutions. I, I would love to talk to you about his preaching, and I, I lecture on his preaching all the time here at the Master's Seminary. Um, but I want to talk about his godliness. I, I want to talk about his devotion to God. At age 18 and 19, he began writing his resolutions that he would review once a week as a checkpoint for his own soul. And these, what became 70 resolutions became like a a spiritual moral compass for his soul that he was always pointed towards devotion to God. And it was by no accident that Jonathan Edwards became Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Great Awakening, the greatest pastor, the greatest philosopher, the greatest preacher, the greatest author of American soil. That didn't just happen. Because at age 18, Edwards charted a course for his spiritual life that would escalate him to being a candidate under the hand of a sovereign God who would use him in virtually unprecedented ways. I don't have time to go through all the 70 resolutions. I, I wish that I did. I'm going to have to just pick and choose five or six, seven. But I want to begin with Revol uh, Resolution 63. This is an unbelievable resolution. On the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time, who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I stro strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. You know what that resolution was? He purposed he would be the most Christ-like Christian alive on planet Earth. 
And this is one of the few resolutions that he actually wrote out twice, almost like driving the nail into the board. And so as a young man, while still as a teenager, he purposed before God and resolved and reaffirmed it every week that he would be the most complete Christian alive in his generation. What a holy ambition. Someone might say, well, that's what a prideful thing. Okay, do you want to be the worst Christian (laughs) in, in, in your generation? No, we should all want to be the most godly, the most Christ-like pastor, servant alive on planet earth. Would to God we would strive with all of our might to be that man. So it is no wonder that God took notice of Jonathan Edwards and that Jonathan Edwards was becoming a holy instrument in the hand of God who would bring about the great awakening at a time in which it is estimated conservatively that one-tenth of the American population was converted to Christ. That there would be 200 churches spontaneously planted with no church planning strategy whatsoever. Just because the, the, there were so many believers being brought into the kingdom of God and the new wine could not go back into the old wineskin and there were 200 new churches that were, that were planted. Jonathan Edwards was used by God to be the one who struck the match, to light the fuse. And it could be argued that Whitfield was the one who then came and fanned the flame until the powder keg blew up to become the Great Awakening. So what was it about Edwards and these resolutions that really framed his pursuit of God? He began writing them in the fall of 1722. Let me just give you a historical framework. He was born in 1703. He died in 1758. And our country was virtually birthed out of the flames of the Great Awakening. Um, So Edwards began writing these at age 18 in the fall of 1722. As I've already said, it having only been converted for only a year. And he has graduated from Yale at age 16 and then began his master's work, completed all of his classwork, and at age 18 steps out of Yale. Have, all he needs to do is to write his, uh, his dissertation. Before he writes his dissertation, he goes to New York. The first time, really, that he left the Connecticut River Valley on his own as a young man going to, the, to this city that is emerging, New York City. And he writes these resolutions. Sitting on top of the resolutions is a preamble. And I want to read the preamble because it is so instructive about his understanding of sanctification. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything 
without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then he adds, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Now, that preamble is very important for us to understand uh, Edward's pursuit of holiness and for us to understand our own sanctification. Because it begins with a statement of his utter dependence upon God in sanctification. It begins by saying, I am unable to do anything without God's help. This is not Edward's just gritting his teeth and sheer willpower, I am going to pursue holiness. No, he understood John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. In Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he understood his complete reliance and dependence upon God in sanctification. Uh, Philippians 2 Verse 13, after verse 12, says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And Edwards understood the human responsibility in pursuing sanctification. But then verse 13, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He understood God must be at work in his heart and in his soul, and God must be the primary agent in his sanctification. So you and I, are utterly dependent upon God for the advancement in godliness. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Regeneration is monergistic. Sanctification is synergistic. There are two active agents. God, capital A, agent, man, believer, small a. And we bear enormous responsibility. We have been given the mind of Christ. We've been given a new heart. We've been given new affections. We've been given a new disposition. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have have come. Nevertheless, we cannot live the Christian life apart from our total, complete dependence upon God to be at work within us. So, Edwards begins by acknowledging this and not only utter dependence, but a, but a prayerful dependence, that, that he must beseech the Lord for grace and strength to pursue godliness. And so he says, I do humbly entreat him. Uh, speaking of calling upon the name of the Lord and the word humbly, Edwards was very well aware. First Peter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he adds, by his grace. Under, understanding, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that is true not only in regeneration and justification, that is true in sanctification as well. I am what I am by the grace of God. He, he was very aware. And then, 
the submissiveness. He, he adds in this preamble that these resolutions would be so far as they are agreeable to his will. So everything had to be in alignment to the word of God and the will of God as he made these resolutions. And then the ultimate motivation over it all, the banner over it all, for Christ's sake. Not, not for himself, not for his ministry, not, not for a denomination, not, not for good grades. Not, not, it's for Christ's sake that he would pursue this godliness and this holiness and that he would discipline himself. And he adds, read over these things once a week. So this is an unusual young man. And this should challenge us. This should challenge the socks off of us to widen our stride and pick up our pace as we pursue godliness in our own life. So let's look at a few of these resolutions. And I I probably should have had these put up on a screen so that you can see them. But just understand this. The first four deal with the glory of God. He, he had been raised under the Westminster Confession and Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, he, he has read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. When you open the Institutes of the Christian Religion and you begin to read you, you, you see that everything begins with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And until you know God and live for God and pursue the glory of God, you'll never know yourself. You can't know yourself until you know God. And so Edwards has, has drunk from deep wells of Reformed theology. He has drunk from deep wells of the Puritans, and the reformers, and he understands soli deo gloria, for, for the glory of God alone. So as he sits down he, to write these resolutions, and he didn't write them all at once. They, they were written over a period of like, like a year and a half. He has this all-absorbing passion for the glory of God. So here's the first resolution resolved. Don't you just like the sound of that word? I mean, how many people do you know that are resolved? I looked up the word resolution and the word resolved in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the standard for the English language, just, just to really more deeply understand just the, what the force of resolved And for resolution, it is a determination, a firmness of purpose, a steadfastness of purpose, a resolute or unyielding temper. The action of of an act of resolving or making up one's mind, a positive intention. That's what the idea is in Edward's mind 
that he is going to be so single-minded on this that he will be unwavering, unwavering by the grace of God. He will be unmoved from this by the grace of God. And the word resolve, free from all doubt, free from all cert- uncertainty, fixed, settled. I love this. So here's resolution number one. That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. That that's what sets the whole domino effect in motion. That will be the leading cause and the leading motive in his life for the rest of his life, whatever will be most to the glory of God. And that would be the determining factor in seeking the will of God. That would be the determining factor in making decisions in ministry for the rest of his life, where he would go and what he would do and how he would serve. What will most glorify God? Everything else is subordinate to God and His glory. What will most glorify God? So let me read this again. Resolved. That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. There's a lot going on there, a lot of good things going on. First of all, most to God's glory. That's what's preeminent. Now, theologians basically will understand, and I can remember R.C. Sproul telling me, theologians have to make careful distinctions. You have to slice things very, very thinly and make distinctions, or theologians cannot Theology can't be like an omelet where things are just thrown in there together. You have to separate things out. So as it relates to glory, there is intrinsic glory and there is ascribed glory. Intrinsic glory is the sum and the substance of all that God is. You cannot give God intrinsic glory. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Um, I am the Lord, your God, I never change. So intrinsic glory is the composite of all of the attributes of God. At the heart is the holiness of God. Isaiah 6 verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty Heaven and earth is full of your glory. That intrinsic glory is the outshining manifestation of the holiness of God, which is the sum of all that God is. The alpha and the omega of the being and the essence and the existence and the triunity of God. And Edwards had drunk from the deep, wells of reformed understanding of the sovereignty and the holiness and the righteousness and the grace of God. 
ascribed glory is our response to intrinsic glory. Ascribed glory is the glory we give to God, the praise and the honor that we give to God, and it is the direct result of seeing and beholding the intrinsic glory of God. And the more we understand of the intrinsic glory of God, the more we ascribe glory to God. In other words, it is our theology that is producing our doxology, right? It's not mood music that's producing this glory that we give to God. It is a renewed mind that is on fire for God that causes a flame of worship to be given to God. Low theology produces low doxology. High theology produces high doxology. And Jonathan Edwards had the highest of all theology. Some theologians have argued that Edwards was more Calvinistic than than John Calvin himself. (laughs) That, That he stood on the shoulders of two centuries of theological thought and was able to reach even higher than than John Calvin and the Reformers. That after the Reformers, then came the Puritans who further refined and categorized uh, realms of theology and saw the cause and effect within theology, and it was like the veil was being pulled back. And Edwards, at his appointed time in history had this expansive understanding of who God is. He had drunk from the deep wells a sound doctrine. So naturally, he writes, where else would he begin these resolutions? That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. And it would not be simply the words that he would express of adoration to God, but that it would be by by the manner with which he would live his life and conduct his walk on a day-in, day-out basis. That would be how he would pursue the glory of God. What's interesting, he then follows... And, and adds this, to my own good, comma, profit, comma, and pleasure. Edwards believed that God's glory was inseparably connected to his own good. And that the more that he sought the glory of God, the greater good would come to his own soul. The more he sought the glory of God, the greater joy would be in his own heart and soul. Sounds like Piper, doesn't it? That the more I would seek to glorify God, and Piper is simply an echo of Jonathan Edwards. We all know that. That there would be more good come to his life. He would be more usable for God. He would enjoy God more he would have greater spiritual profit in his life the more he sought the glory of God, that the glory of God and his own good were not at odds with one another, but that they were inseparably bound and inseparably connected. 
This 18-year-old teenager connected the dots on this. And it inflamed his soul to pursue the glory of God. And that God would be most glorified as he would pursue the glory of God. And then he adds, in the whole of my duration. In other words, this isn't just a season in my life. It's not just a phase I'm going through as a teenager. But that as long as I live, as long as I have breath, and my feet are on this earth, this will be the supreme passion of my heart and my soul to bring glory to God. And then he adds this. In this first resolution, there's so much packed in. It's almost like Pauline, just so much into one sentence. Then he adds, most for the good of mankind. So in other words, the more that he would pursue giving glory and honor to God by his, by his own life, not only would there be greater good come to his own soul, but there would be greater good come to others around him, that he would actually love his neighbor by pursuing the glory of God, that there would be such uh, an impact upon his own life that it would spill out into the life of, of others. And, and we actually see that. You remember when Edwards is in his Northampton pastorate and, and David Brainerd comes and, and to, to live in his house, as many young men did, but Brainerd literally died in Edwards, all but Edwards' arms in his own home. He's buried there. I've stood there at the grave at, at Northampton. Edwards took... Brainerd's diary and had it published because he believed it would bring glory to God. And it was Brainerd's diary that William Carey read that ignited his soul and torched his heart to get on a ship and begin the modern missions movement. It's what Jim Elliott read when he was at Wheaton when he went to the Aka Indians. And it was like, this is the fulfillment. The more he would seek to glorify God, the more there would be a ripple effect in the world of good coming to other people. So this is the first resolution. And then he adds with this, these, these, these next four words, whatever difficulties I meet. This isn't going to be just when the sun is shining outside. This isn't going to be just in good times. This is going to be in the dark nights of the soul. This is going to be in the midst of the tempestuous storms of life. This is going to be when after 22 years as pastor at Northampton and they voted him out by a 90% vote. He will seek the glory of God, literally come hell or high water. And then he will make the decision to go to the Mohawk Indians when he could have gone to London to pastor, he could have gone to Boston to pastor, he could have gone to prestigious pulpits to pastor. Who wouldn't take 
Jonathan Edwards to be their, their pastor, the, the, the leader of the Great Awakening, he chooses to go to Nowheresville, literally, and preach for the next five years on a fifth grade level. The greatest mind of, 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 of America preaching on a fifth grade level because he believed in his heart that would bring greatest glory to God, whatever the difficulty. See, it wasn't about him. It was about God. Edwards also wrote a diary. And let me just read to you what he wrote in his diary, what's going on in his soul at this time. I've written a book on Jonathan Edwards, The Unwavering, excuse me, yeah, The Unwavering Resolve of Jonathan Edwards, and I took three things. I took his resolutions, I took his diary, and I took his sermons, and I just merged those three together to, to pull back the veil and to look down into his heart and soul. Listen to what he writes in his diary. This is unbelievable. I claim no right to myself. This is a teenage boy. I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, to this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, no right to these hands, no right to these feet, to these ears, to these eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning, and I have told Him I have given myself wholly to Him. I have given every power within me so that in the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised Him, for by His grace I will not fail." I take him as my whole portion and happiness, looking upon nothing else for my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all of my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and practice of it may be. I pray God for the sake of others to look on this as self-dedication. Henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. I shall act as my, my own if I ever make any use of all of my powers to do anything that is not to the glory of God. Now, if I, if I ever use this brilliant intellect, if I ever use this, this giftedness of tongue, if I ever use this resolve and resolution, uh, 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 resolution, sorry, resolution, then in essence, may God rip this tongue out of my head and may God unplug this mind if it's not going to be used for the glory of God. If I murmur in the least affliction, if I am in any way uncharitable, if I revenge my own case, if I do anything purely to please myself, 
or omit anything because it is a great denial. If I trust myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me, or if I am any way proud, I shall act as my own and not God's. But I purpose to be absolutely His. Close quote. That's quite a little diary. (laughs) It is by no happenstance that Jonathan Edwards became Jonathan Edwards. He set a course for his life as a teenager that he would be, by the grace of God, the single one most complete Christian on planet Earth in my generation. And nothing would divert him from that as God would give him the grace to pursue this. I think that got God's attention in heaven. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to strongly strengthen that one whose heart is completely his. Jonathan Edwards got God's attention while he was still a teenager. And everything is flowing out of this seeking the glory of God. J.I. Packer has written that Edwards was, quote, God-centered, God-focused, God-intoxicated, and God-entranced. It's just God, 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 God. Packer writes, there is no overstatement here. In other words, this is no hyperbole about Edwards. This is no exaggerated, over-the-top statement. There is, there is no overstatement here. Every day, from morning till night, he sought to live in conscious communion with God. Close quote. So now the question is, how? How shall I then live for the glory of God? And Edwards wanted to boil this down to where the rubber meets the road. This was not to be just a a mind game while sitting in an ivory tower. This wasn't to be just a philosophical perspective or a heady mind game. This would involve down-to-earth, day-to-day, commonplace acts and words and disciplines that he would live for the glory of God. He, he believed not only has God appointed the end of all things, but that God has also appointed the necessary means to the accomplishment of those predetermined ends. And so Edwards understood that if he was to live For the glory of God being that highest good, there would be necessary means by which this greatest good would come to pass. 
And so for Edwards, he knew he must live with an eternal perspective. He must see everything in light of eternity. And at one point, Edwards wrote, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Close quote. I, I, I need to have eternity stamped on my eyeballs. You, you need to have eternity tattooed on your eyeballs such that your your lens, your paradigm through which you see circumstances and life all around you, you see things not in the short, but in the ultimate eternal end of all things. So for Edwards, this would involve continually thinking of the shortness of time the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. The shortness of time, the certainty of death, the suddenness of death, and the length of eternity. And that every decision for the rest of his life would have to be filtered through those three paradigms. Shortness of life, Certainty of death, length of eternity. So, remember I said the first four resolutions deal with the glory of God. I'm going to skip over two, three, and four, which are just kind of shorter restatements of the first resolution. Beginning with resolution five, Edwards now gets down into the nitty-gritty of life. And resolution number five says this, resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it to the most profitable way I possibly can, close quote. Edwards understood that if he wasted time, he would rob God of his glory. Not of his intrinsic glory, but of his ascribed glory. That if he wasted even one moment of time, that it, it would hinder glory being given to God. Let me read it again. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way I can. Edwards understood that to glorify God, he must redeem the time. That if he is to glorify God, he has no time to waste. Edwards believed that God had put him sovereignly into his place in history, that God had appointed the day of his birth, and that God had already foreordained the day of his death, and that God had ordained every day in between, that he had a predetermined number of days to be here upon the earth. He would not live one day further, one day less, and that he must make every day 
count for the glory of God. No, no wonder Piper wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Life. Remember the back of the book? The back of the book tells the whole story. A, guy, a couple in Florida on a, on a beach looking at seashells, and the caption under it, you know, it's a retired couple. They sold the house, sold the business, and they just want to go to Florida and retire and do nothing and be nothing. And, and the caption under the picture is, look, honey, see my seashells. Now that robs God of his glory. You can retire from work. You never retire from God. And you never retire from pursuing the path that God has set for your life. And as long as you have life and breath on this earth, there is something for you to do to glorify God. And it's not hanging out. Job 14, verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. In other words, God has set the boundaries of the time dimension of your life, and you will not exceed that limit. When it is your time to go, it is your time to go because God has appointed it is your time to go. And when you just look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, my hour is not yet here. And now finally in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. He understood he was on a, a divine time schedule. Psalm 90, verse 12, prayer of Moses. This is the first psalm that was written, placed in the 90th position by the collators. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You and I do not know how many days we have, but when he says for us to count the number of our days means to weigh them very carefully that they are of great value and there will be no more given to you. So invest them very shrewdly and wisely for the glory of God that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And if you do not count your days, you are the biggest fool on planet earth. Psalm 139 verse 16. In your book were written all the days that you ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God has already written in the book of Providence how many days you have to live here on the earth, how many days you have to preach the gospel, how many days you have to pursue the will of God. And Edwards understood that. And further, he understood within these days that there were opportunities within these days and that these opportunities would never be recovered as you went on in time. In other words, men, your children that are ages 2, 3, and 4 
will never again be ages two, three, and four. And you must seize the moment now, today, because you will not have it later. So Edwards had thought this through from every different dimension. So he was resolved not to lose one moment of time nor any opportunity within time that he would improve it the most profitable way, profitable way. In other words, he must be a, a, a wise investor of his time that will yield the maximum rate of return. He can't just bury his life in the dirt. He must invest it wisely for the glory of God. So that's resolution number five. And, and that was like a dominant thought in, in Edward's life. And, and I can say by the grace of God, that is a dominant thought in my own mind and heart. I mean, I, I used to play football, and in the, when you get to the fourth quarter, and when you get to the end of the, first, the fourth quarter, every split second is critically important. There's no time to waste. You don't just shuffle up to the line of scrimmage. You sprint to the line of scrimmage. You sprint back in the huddle because time is passing away. And Edwards understood that in his own life, even as a teenager. The same is true in your life. You'll never have this day again. You'll never have the opportunity to even be in this classroom like this again. You'll never have the opportunity to be at this shepherd's conference with these speakers and these messages and these applications being brought to bear upon your heart. You've got to make the most of the moment. Are you robbing God of his glory? Resolution number seven. Resolved, never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So Edwards was always anticipating and thinking about the last hour of his life. And what I would be doing now today, is that what I would want to be doing if this were the last hour of my life? both negative and positive. Is this something I ought not to be doing if this were the last hour of my life? Is this something I should be doing if it were the last hour of my life? He was always focusing upon the last hour of his life because it has a dramatic way to prioritize now what you perceive to be will be most important then. Have you ever thought about the last hour of your life? Will you be at home? Will you be in bed? Will you be in the den in a chair? Will you be in a hospital? Will you be on an airplane? What will you be doing the last hour of your life? Whitfield said, I pray to God that I die in the pulpit. And if I don't die in the pulpit, 
bury me under the last pulpit I preached in. Or bury me under the next pulpit I'm to preach in. And I've gone there to Massachusetts. And I've gone down into the basement of that church. That is immediately under the pulpit where he was to preach that very Sunday morning. Where he is buried. And that is the way they thought at this day and time. I mean, there was no talk about thoughts about retirement. They would never retire. They would refire. They would preach until they'd drop. At, at the end, do you know the elders of the church in Geneva? Literally, Calvin couldn't walk. They would come. They, the elders came to his house and picked him up, put him in a chair, and the elders carried him in his chair to church. I mean, there's no other way to get him to church. I mean, preaching until he can't even walk to church. I mean, they were always pressing to that last hour of, of their life. Resolved never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So, man, you need to have that last hour of your life that thought ever before you and work backwards to strategically invest my life now today in light of that last hour. Resolution number 10. What, what a resolution this one's going to be. Resolved. When I feel pain... To think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Now, today, we would send a guy like that to a counselor. <laughs> Man, what's wrong with you? You're just a morbid person. Your problem is you have a bad self-esteem. You're too hard on yourself. Loosen up. Go to the mall. Buy some ice cream. Listen to this again. This is rehearsed in his mind as an anchor point week after week after week after week, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Not heaven, hell. Why? Because that puts everything in right perspective. If you were to ask Edwards, he would say to you, I've never had a bad day. Not compared to hell. Not, not, not compared to the martyr's death on the, uh, at the stake. And so Edwards compared all of his difficulties and adversities to the, to the, the pains of being strapped to the stake and being set on fire, and being burned as a, as a martyr. That put everything into right perspective. It kept him from spiraling down into a whining self-pity party. It, it kept him moving forward with a, 
indefatigable, triumphant march forward in his, in his Christian life. And, and I know for me, reading that resolution, that that spoke volumes to me. A number of years ago, I pastored a large church, and I preached the Bible. I preached Reformed truth, and they were not Reformed. And long and the short of it is, I, I was run out of town on a, on a rail. When, I, when, when my sons drove me away from that last church service, I literally told my sons, stop the car in the parking lot with the people coming out looking at the getaway car. I got out of the car, took my shoes off, and dusted my shoes <laughs> in front of the church with TV stations and, and newspaper reporters. Well, one thing that kept high octane in my tank, kept me going, I was thinking about the death of the martyrs. In fact, I got their books, and I lined them up right behind my desk. As I wrote my sermons, they're looking over my shoulders. I've never had a bad day. The worst day is a good day compared to the death of the martyrs. And I can't spiral down into this little self-pity party, and I'm just now a wounded warrior no, if they can go to the stake and die, then surely I can press on and live. And still in my Bible, some of you have, have seen this before. It's John Rogers. He was burned at the stake February the 4th, 1555. The first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. And whenever I go to London and whenever I take a tour group to London, let me tell you where's the first place we go. I, got, I have the buses. We're going to Smithfield in London, and we're going to the back of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, interestingly enough, where Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced medicine before he went into the ministry. And there is this plaque marking the spot where he was burned at the stake in front of his own church to intimidate his congregation. This is what we think of your preacher, and this is what we think of your doctrine. And I keep in the back of my Bible a wood carving of, of, of Edward, I mean of Jonathan, John Rogers in the fire being burned and his 11 children were around. The youngest he had never even seen because his wife delivered while he was in the Newgate prison. And as he went to the stake, the, ambas the French ambassador said of John Rogers as he went to the stake, and by the way, he went to the stake quoting Psalm 51. The French ambassador said it looked like he was going to his wedding. I need that in me. I, I, I don't need whining people are... I, I, I need to minister to whining people, but I need martyrs. And, and here at Masters in the Doctor of Ministry program, um, I taught on the English martyrs. 
and it's moving. Ridley, Latimer, Cranmer, Rogers, 288, burned at the stake. Women, children, unyielding. I don't know where you are, what's going on in your life, what difficulty. I don't diminish the reality of the pain you may be in. Major surgery is when it's your surgery. And a major trial is when it's your trial. Now, I don't diminish the affliction and the pain and the reality. But I would encourage you to keep it in right perspective. Compared to what? Compared to Disneyland? Compared to the death of the martyrs? Resolution 50. I will act... And, and uh, resolved. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that, that, that's the living Bible right there. So <laughs> it was a dynamic equivalent. Uh, <laughs> this is New American Standard right here, okay? Accurate word for word. All right. Resolved. I will act, so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. So in other words, not only does he think about the last day, and not only does he think about martyrs on the last day, he gets on the other side of the last day. Not only does he think about hell, he thinks about heaven and on the other side, now that he anticipates being in heaven, what's going to be important in heaven? What's going to be important 10,000 years from now? What's going to be important ages and ages from now? That needs to escalate and rise to the surface today. That better be important today. So that, that's just going to cut a lot of junk out. Now... We need to have recreation, and there needs to be a sabbatical principle. So please don't misunderstand, and true recreation means to be recreated. That's what recreation means, a recreation of your emotional, physical, spiritual fortitude. We all need that. You can't burn the candle 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You need to be shrewd in how you lay out your time. But having said that, how much other stuff is just going down the drain? So he's always thinking about what is important in the future world to come. That needs to be the steering wheel in, in my life now. So this Scottish Presbyterian church eventually got back together. And the two sides that had separated came back and they no longer needed the young teenage boy. He went back to Yale and wrote his dissertation. And his heart and life was set on a course that would make him a worthy candidate to be used by God if God would so choose and it would please him. 
And you know the rest of the story, how he went to be the associate to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who had been there at that time 60 years. Everyone understood what was about to take place. And Stoddard passed away. And Jonathan Edwards, at age, I believe it's 27, stepped into one of the most prominent pulpits in New England. Thereby sheer providence, divine appointment. Only God could have parachuted him into that pulpit. The first time Edwards left town, he was invited to go to Boston to preach the day before commencement, to gather together with a number of Harvard-graduated preachers, who were already on the slippery slope. Edwards identified two dangers to the, to the colonies, Arminianism and antinomianism, would threaten the colonies. And the first time he stepped out onto the grand stage of that day, he chose for his text, 1 Corinthians 1, 29 to 31, for by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, redemption, sanctification, and righteousness, so that no flesh may glory in his presence. He hit the ground running, preaching sovereign grace, electing grace, predestinating grace, redeeming grace grace. And there were some men there that day who recognized the child, child prodigy. They asked for his notes. They printed it up. And it was the first thing to be printed by Edwards. It went to England and Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, read this. Who is this? And had it printed in England. This is by no happenstance. The first time he preaches out of his own pulpit in Boston, he preaches on the glory of God, the supremacy of God in salvation. In 1734, Edwards gives two messages on justification. He actually gave it on a Sunday afternoon, invited the whole town, because he wanted to slit the throat of Arminianism and antinomianism. That was in November. In December, he preached a sermon that started the ground rumbling and the earthquake that would become the Great Awakening. The title of the message may surprise you. The preciousness of time and the importance of redeeming it. December 1734, he chose for his text Ephesians 5, verse 16. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. So in this very well-structured sermon, he talks about, quote, time is exceedingly precious, close quote. 
And he talks about why is time precious? Why is your time precious? And, and he reasons because what is done in time affects your eternity. And eternity is so long. And time is so short that you must invest your time wisely because it affects eternity. He writes, a happy or miserable eternity depends on the good or ill improvement of it. This renders time so exceedingly precious because our eternal welfare depends on the improvement of it. And then he's second because time is precious because it's so very short. And, and, he, and he, I was a finance major in, in college, and it's the old law of supply and demand. The, the, the lesser the supply, the greater the demand. If you have a lot of something, the demand goes down. If you have very few of something, the demand escalates and goes sky high. And, and Edward says, so it is with time. Because you have so little time here upon the earth, then the the value of the time just quadruples and escalates. He says, the scarcity of any commodity occasions men to set a high value upon it, especially if it is necessary and they cannot do without it. So time is the more to be prized by men because a whole eternity depends upon it. And then third, he says, time is so precious because it is uncertain how much time you have left. He says, no person ever knows how little time he has that remains. He says, time ought to be esteemed by us very precious because we are uncertain of its continuance. And we know that it is very short, but we do not know how short. We do not know how little of it remains, whether a year or several years or only a month or a week or even just a day. If a man had but a little provision laid up for a journey, or a voyage, a voyage, and at the same time knew if his provision should fail during the course of the journey, and he would perish by the way, he would be the more choice of it. How much, how much more would many men prize their time if they only knew how few days they have left to live? And now, listen to this, time is precious because once it is lost, it can never be recovered. And he goes into this brilliant explanation that a, that a man can build up a, a vast estate and he can lose all of his wealth and his money, but he can rebuild his barns and he can come back and he can regain a lost estate. But when you lose time, you will never recover it again. Time lost is time lost forever. So then he goes to, so who wastes their time? And he goes, those involved in idleness waste their time. He says, they waste their time in just frivolous, nothing living. He says, some spend much of their time at the tavern and over their cups and in wandering from house to house, wasting away their, their hours in idle and unprofitable talk, which will turn to no account. It's not necessarily that they're sinful things. They're just nothing things. But then he says, those who waste their time are those who are involved in wickedness. 
He says, so much time. Uh, some spend much time in reveling and in unclean talk and unclean practices and vicious company in corrupting and ensnaring the minds of others, setting bad examples and leading others into sin, undoing not only their own souls, but undoing the souls of others. They spend much of their precious time backbiting and talking against others in contention and quarreling among themselves and, and stirring up strife. They're just squandering their life. And then he says, those who are involved in just worldly pursuits. He says, they whose time is taken up in laboring for only this world. He's not saying we're not to work in this world, but he's saying, if you only live for this world and only work in this world, you're just wasting your life. You're wasting your, your time. You're spending your time, he says, inquiring in what they shall eat and what they shall drink and how they shall be clothed and, and laying up for themselves treasures upon earth. And he says, the more you gain from this world, the less you have. He says, what happiness or satisfaction can you reap from the things of this world? Will it, will it give you peace of mind? Will it salve your conscience? Will it give you comfort? What is your poor, needy, perishing soul the better for the accumulation of this world? So he then says, let me tell you how to improve your time. He says, consider your accountability to God, that one day you will stand before God, even as a believer and as a servant to his master, you will give an account to the master for how you spent your time. Did you invest it in his kingdom? Did you invest it in his work? Or did you just frivolously squander it away? Then he says, you need to consider how much time you have already lost. He says, in that you have lost so much time, you have the more need of diligence. You've already wasted so much time. You can't afford to lose any more time. As your opportunity is now so much the shorter, he argues, you have the same amount of work assigned to you by God, but you now have less time to do the same amount of work. That God has already foreordained the good works that you are to do from before the foundation of the world, and because you've squandered so much time, you have no time to waste now because you have less and less time to do the same amount of work. And then he says, consider those at the end of their time. And he says, come with me to the deathbed and listen to the man as he comes to the end of his life and hear him cry out, oh, a thousand worlds for an inch of time. Then time appears to him so precious. The near approach of death makes men sensible of the inestimable worth of time. But then Edwards, he, he, he goes yet deeper. 
And I'm reminded of what one Edwardian scholar said of Edwards. In his doctrine and in the exposition of the passage, he was merely getting his guns and cannons into position. (laughs) But with the application, he fired those cannons. And this is in the application section. And so he now says, descend with me down into the bowels of hell. And listen to the shrieks and the groans and the moans of the tormented damned souls in hell. And smell their flesh burning in the fires of hell. And listen to what they say to you about time. How they would give, they would give all of the eternities in hell for just this moment in time that you have right now. To glorify God and to pursue the right path. No wonder this sermon was used by God to bring about the birth and the beginning of the Great Awakening. As he was preaching on the shortness of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. So I will close with this. Come to the very end of Edward's life. He's been run out of his church after 22 years by a 90% vote. He goes to upstate New York. Two families follow him there just to torment him and badger him. They accuse him of embezzlement. They accuse him of all kinds of fraudulent charges. And Edwards remains steadfast in seeking to pursue the glory of God. His son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., was the second president of what is today Princeton, who married his daughter, one of his daughters, Esther, He dies in office in 15, excuse me, 1737. And out of nowhere comes this letter to Edwards, who's out on the mission field with the Indians. We want you to come be the third president of Princeton. Edwards sends back a letter and refuses and says he's unqualified to serve as their president. That it would be embarrassing for him to step into this office, but worse, embarrassing for the school for him to accept. He cannot. Another letter comes back in the dead of winter. You must come be our president and follow your now deceased son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr. It would be Aaron Burr's son who would shoot Alexander Hamilton in the last pistol duel. And become vice president of the United States. What a family tree Edwards had. (laughs) That's another message. I would love to trace that with you. Edwards comes back to the moral compass. What will most glorify God? And for Edwards, he realized that he must come to New Jersey, to Princeton. So he arrives in January 1738 
and there is a smallpox breakout. And on February the 13th, 1758, Edwards takes a smallpox inoculation to show to the student body this won't hurt you. It had the opposite effect. His throat swells and swells to the point that the air channel is shut down. And on the second floor into what is now the admissions house at Princeton, Edwards is on his deathbed. He has planned his entire life for this moment. He has always thought about the last hour of his life. He has prepared for this hour. He has charted a course that has led him to this hour. His wife, Sarah, is back in upstate New York packing up the family and will later move all their belongings to Princeton. She is not by his side. His daughter, Lucy, is the only family member there. Edward says this to his daughter. He spoke with no regrets. He spoke with only resolution. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God And as to you, my children, you are now left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you to seek a father who will never fail you. He died March 22nd, 1758, the age of 55, only two months after becoming president of Princeton, but as an 18-year-old student teenager, interim preacher, he had charted the course of his life for this very moment. I end with Resolution 52, Resolved. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I live to old age. Close quote. 
In other words, I don't want to be just one more person saying, I wish I could live my life over. What I would have done different. No, I will be that man who will not change a thing because I will live for the glory of God and everything will yield to this highest good. Men, I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know where you are geographically. I don't know where you are vocationally. I don't know where you are ministerially. But I want to encourage you and challenge you as I would challenge myself. You need to prepare for the last day, the last hour of your life. And you need to invest your life now, today, and make decisions, even at this conference, that will set you on the path that when you come to the end of your life, you're not going to be just one more old man saying, I wish I could live my life over again. And when you come to the end, that you will realize you're there by the will of God and that you had purposed and resolved to live for the glory of God as he would give you grace. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Thank you for coming to this. I'm surprised anyone has come. So thank you for coming. And I look forward to preaching Friday afternoon at 3.30. Please come. (laughs) Thank you. Let's pray. Father, enable us to look to our elder brother, Jonathan Edwards, as we would look to the examples of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, those who have gone before us and who have charted a course of godliness. Paul tells us to follow me as I follow Christ. So enable us to follow even the example of Jonathan Edwards to the extent that he was truly following Christ. And Lord, we see much of Jesus Christ in Jonathan Edwards. I pray that you would enable us to keep step and to head in the right direction in our pursuit of godliness and holiness and humility. Use us to the fullest that you would desire to use each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.